Hello, I'm Pastor Zach Hoffman, and I'm the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Gainesville, Georgia, where we seek to know Christ and love one another. We do this by witnessing faithfully, transforming our homes into places where the Word of God dwells, and by investing in the communities around us. We hope that you enjoy this podcast, and if you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning, our service times are at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. God's blessings. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sermon text today is from Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul commends the church in Colossae, saying that their love for the saints comes because of this hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So once again, our question for today in our series of tough questions is, can I trust the Bible? How do I know that the Bible is really true? And as I mentioned before, it's a great question. It comes from one of the children in our congregation, but I think it hits us on a number of many different levels. Is the Bible really God's word through and through, from Genesis to Revelation? And perhaps now, unlike any other time, there's more pressure put on that belief than there ever has been before. What comes to mind are at least three different places from which that pressure might come from, pressure to sort of acquiesce, pressure to step back and say, well, it really isn't all true, or, or some of it's true. The first place that it comes from might, might surprise you a little bit, the place where we receive the most pressure maybe to back down from saying that the Word of God is the Word of God through and through, comes from no less than the church itself. There are many, perhaps sitting in pews on a Sunday morning, even now, and if it's the topic of the day, maybe they're learning all kinds of things about God's Word, and there are many churches that, that teach things like this, that the Word of God, or that the Bible contains the Word of God. Now, when you hear that, you might think, yes, it contains the Word of God, from the first page of the first word of the book of Genesis, all the way to the last page and the last word of the book of Revelation. From cover to cover, it contains the Word of God. But that's not how that phrase is always meant. In fact, by saying it contains the Word of God, many will teach, even well-meaning Christians will teach, that, that the Bible does have the Word of God in it, along with some other stuff that definitely isn't the Word of God. Uh, you can think of it sort of like a juice box, right? Whenever you, you find a juice box in the store, and maybe this is just how we shop, but maybe you find a juice box in the store and it contains the word, or it has the phrase, contains real fruit juice, right? Contains real fruit juice. That can mean that maybe 99% of it is real fruit juice or some guy out of guilt squeezed the lemon into the sugar, water, and other chemicals before the box was sealed and so it contains real fruit juice. Sure, it's got a little bit in it, but not much to go on. And that's how even in many churches today the Word of God is taught. It contains, or the Bible is taught, it contains the Word of God. Many well-meaning Christians will also say even this, that the central message of the story of the Bible is Jesus. And that's true, right? Jesus is the central message of the Bible. But that's kind of like the whole contains the Word of God thing. It means that this much we know is true, that Jesus died and rose, but we're not really willing to take on any of the other stuff, especially the more scandalous stuff or the stuff that, that is less clear or murky, or the stuff that's easier to doubt, like, say, Noah and the Flood, or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They would say that isn't, a, isn't really about Jesus, so we can throw it away. And so one place of pressure comes from the church, surprisingly. Another place of, of 
pressure comes, and I don't mean this one personally, by the way, I should start off with this. When we talk about the second place where pressure comes to kind of forego the word of God, I don't mean it uh, that there aren't people here that read their Bibles every day that are steeped in God's word. I'm going to speak generally of the church and say that when it comes to today's world, generally Christians are more ignorant of the Bible than ever before. And when we're like that, we set ourselves up for somebody who sounds reasonable to come along and with a word or two sow seeds of doubt into our hearts. It can happen on TV where, where some talking head is talking about how the Bible contradicts itself, when all it would take is a little bit more reading of the Bible to find out how that contradiction is resolved. But if we don't read on, we never find that. So we're left thinking there's a contradiction. Or even a Facebook post can come along and drop something about the Bible that can make us doubt it in just a fancy image and a couple words. A third place of pressure sort of give up some of these less appetizing parts of the Bible comes from a world that is ever more sensitive to God's judgment. See, when we hear all these dark stories about the things that God did in Egypt or in other places or how he punished Israel, there's a temptation to shirk back from that. God brought death to real people. And that terrifies us to the point that we want to maybe even give those stories up have a little bit more of an appeasing Bible. We've lost the concept of sin, the concept of God as Lord, and trust in his judgment, even the judgments that make us uncomfortable. And so here's the, these three places, and, and there could be more. I'm not trying to create an exhaustive list for you, but, but in places uh, in the church, also out from our own perhaps ignorance of the Bible, and then Another place is our, is our culture, and, and I want to warn you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that these things are not just out there, they are coming for you, coming for your children and your grandchildren. These things are on the offensive, they're not just places to avoid, they come to your door. So then how can we trust the Bible? How do we know whether or not it's true? Start answering that question by a simple question for you. And again, this is the part in the sermon where I'm actually going to let you answer back. And I know we're a Lutheran church. We don't normally do that. But we have some grace here. We're in a Baptist country, so our Baptist area of the country. So I know that some of you have it in you. Uh, so here we go. Here's, here's the question. Here's the question. What are the motivations for telling a lie? What are the motivations for telling a lie? To stay out of trouble? Okay. Yeah. Because the truth can hurt? Yeah? Okay. What? To hide something? I heard something else somewhere. Okay, so you won't get caught, right? Anything else? <laughs> you know what? You know what? I was just about to commend this service because in the early service, in the early service when people aren't even awake, we got some snarky answers. And I was about to say, well done, all of you. But unfortunately... One person, there's one in every group, all right, to make your wife happy. Thank you. So to get out of trouble, to avoid telling the truth, to hide something, also we would lie for personal gain, right? Personal profit. 
to hold our place in the world of influence. Those are all reasons to lie, maybe even to get elected. You know, and so we have all of these things going on uh, whenever we're wanting to tell a lie. So let's see how that matches up with what we see in the lives of those who wrote the Bible. We see here as we follow the lives of the apostles that they, all of them except for John, died painful and bitter deaths. Some were beheaded, some were set on fire. John himself, they attempted to kill him with, with poison, but he was too ornery, so he just died in exile away from, from Christian fellowship, away from family, away from friends, away from his community on an island called Patmos. These apostles gave up everything in their lives for a movement that at the time was growing, but still very small in terms of the rest of the world. They died without little, they died with very little, if any, money in their pockets, with hardly any influence in the world. They gave up their lives for the sake of the truth of the gospel. And you would think that somewhere along the way, if they were telling a lie, that it would all unravel. A lie is supposed to be a smooth, well-oiled machine, right? There aren't supposed to be any wrinkles in it. But whenever we open up the pages of Scripture, we find conflicts. We find even conflicts in the church, but also conflicts among the apostles themselves. We have Paul and Peter. They have an argument that's described for us in Galatians chapter 2. We have Paul and Barnabas that also have a public disagreement, and so they split from one another. You would think that at one point somebody would say, I finally had enough of this. It's not not all true, it's all a lie, but it doesn't happen that way. Instead, as we look down after the apostles, we find churches that continue to do things in the world that don't make sense if it were all a lie. If you were to sell all of your possessions and give it to those who are in need, you would, by definition, be putting yourself in a place of need, right? I mean, if you sold all of your possessions, all of a sudden you're the one who's in need. Now, now, that would mean that you would turn around and resupply yourself or buy things for yourself to help you get by. But that's not what the early Christians did. In Acts chapter 2, we have not just a few examples from the apostles. We have an entire church of people who sold everything they had and they gave it to other people who were in need. And then we also have Paul committing the church here in Colossae. This, this church that he's writing to is renowned for the love of the saints. And Paul notes that it's not just this church, but this gospel in chapter 1, verse 6, is bearing fruit all over the world. It's not just a pocket in Jerusalem where people are giving towards those who have need and making crazy, radical decisions based on this new information they found out, but it's happening here, there, and everywhere. And again, it's happening with little gain to the people who do it. So I think at some point, if you're going to view the scriptures as a lie, you have to really start stretching things out because simply it just breaks down by looking at the fruit that is born in the lives of those who knew Christ, followed Christ, and came to know him through the preaching of the gospel. But what about Jesus himself then? Let's push a little bit further. We can look at the outside things. We can look at how people were inspired by the story of Jesus and the stories of the Bible, but, but how is it for Jesus? How can we know that the Bible really is about Jesus, all of the Bible from beginning to end? We can start actually at the beginning. We can look at Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve, the first people that God created, fell into sin 
And so death entered into the world, and what does God do? He promises that one would come who would crush the serpent. We find people like Job who lived very early on, and, and Job, even before he had the prophets, before he had any of the Gospels written, Job cried out in chapter 19 of his book, I know that my Redeemer lives. And Job pictures standing with this Redeemer at the end. And we can also notice the places in Scripture where Jesus hasn't come in full, and that absence is painfully obvious. Moses was the greatest leader in the Old Testament, maybe aside from King David, and he himself, through his own sin, could not even enter the Promised Land. Joshua followed Moses, and he couldn't even conquer the entire Promised Land so that the people of Israel were marinating in idolatry and cooking themselves in unbelief. So it goes that these people are exiled, and they're allowed to return after a period back to Jerusalem. That city is a shell of its former glory, a shadow of itself. And if the Old Testament were to end there, the story would be completely pointless. And yet, all along, throughout Israel's unbelief and sin and rebellion, you have a consistent proclamation of a hope that is to come. Like in Isaiah 7, virgin, be with child, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, were the least among the clans. Out of you will come a ruler who will rule over the nations. This proclamation of who is to come remains consistent all throughout the Old Testament. We find, of course, right away in the New Testament, Jesus and the biographies that are given to us in the Gospels, and Jesus has the last words in Revelation saying that I am coming soon. And so here's where we get to the point where we see Jesus all throughout Scripture from beginning to end and everywhere in between so that we recognize maybe that if we take out of the parts or take away the parts of the Bible that we're not comfortable with, then we lose a lot of Jesus. And so even those who are well-meaning, those who are trying to make the Bible more palatable, who are trying to call more to come to faith in Jesus Christ, when they snip and cut away at the Bible, they do more harm than they recognize. The Bible is a whole story, a whole book. It has Jesus in every little and big place. But then, if the book is consistent, that still doesn't necessarily translate to whether or not we should believe or trust in Jesus. Sure, I've I've shown you a consistent book, but what about Jesus? Is he actually real? Can he be trusted? Well, I'll say this. Christianity is the only reasonable hope for salvation that mankind has. It's the only reasonable faith out there. And I know that might sound a little bit strange to you, especially if you're not used to the Bible, if you're new to the faith, You've always had your questions or your doubts. After all, we're talking about a miracle man, right? One who raised the dead, one who healed the sick, one who himself also rose from the dead. Even if you believe firmly in these things, you know they're extraordinary. So how can you say that Christianity is the only reasonable faith? If you go with any other belief system, you'll find yourself between the jaws of these two things. You'll find a law that constantly tells you do more when you can't, to be better when you're not, try harder, there's no energy for such things. On the other side, you'll find a God who leans back and waits until you are worthy to bless. 
So you will live in this place where your religion will tell you that you have to be better, you have to behave better, you have to do more. You can't. Then also you have a God who will wait until you are good enough before he shows his favor or gives you even a scrap of grace. You will live between these places and slowly but surely these jaws will close in on you. Even those who claim to have no God, if we looked at that, if we looked at atheism, if we looked at, at, at how those were even growing in number who, who are atheists, apparently even 20% of Americans are now atheists and that continues to grow. There are other countries where that is higher and we could ask simply this one question, in places where atheism has dominance, is the world better in those places? Is there more hope, more solutions from reasonable people coming out of these places? Has the world in these places lost its propensity for irrationality or violence? And as you look at each one of them, the answer is a resounding no. And you might be saying, well, Christianity has been in the world too, along with all these other religions of the world, along with atheism, and it, the world is not getting better. And that's exactly the point. Christianity is not about bringing solutions into the world. In fact, oftentimes, that's where the church gets in trouble, is when one Christian looks to other Christians to bring the answers, the solutions, and the hope. That's where the church has oftentimes gone off the rails. Instead, you look to one comes from outside of this world, Christ, for our hope, for our solutions, for his answers. We wait for his coming. We serve one another. We love one another. But we know that ultimately the curse of death and all the pain and misery we see in the world will not end until he comes back. Christianity is a faith that doesn't point to itself but points to someone else. Jesus Christ. That's the only hope the world has, and it's the only religion that does it. Furthermore, Christianity is the only religion where we can honestly confess our condition, where we can say, no, I can't do more, I can't do better, I'm a broken, sinful person. And instead of receiving more wrath and condemnation from God, we find his embrace, his love, and his mercy. Forgiveness of sins for you. God loves a broken heart. God of the Bible loves broken heart. We can maybe look at this from one last perspective here. And that is, who is Jesus? This Jesus came and his entire life was steeped in the Old Testament. Everything he said, everything he did was, was from of old. Everything he did was, was predicted or, or, or prefigured or alluded to by those who wrote the Old Testament scriptures. We have Jesus who's out doing his thing, and then all of a sudden John the Baptist sends disciples to Jesus, and these disciples ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And instead of turning towards, the, towards those disciples and saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, Jesus turns and says, listen, those who are blind receive their sight. Those who are lame walk. Those who are dead are raised and the gospel is preached to the poor. Jesus there is talking about Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah 61. Jesus is describing himself and his actions as fulfilling the scriptures. Jesus also talks about metaphors and allusions, and he applies those to himself from the Old Testament. For example, Jesus says, I am the good 
oh my goodness. It's one of those scary moments in the sermon where like you ask a question and you notice that like 25 people are all like, I'm up here, people. All right, so Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Okay, better, pay attention. I am the good shepherd, right? Where does that come from? Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. And in many other places throughout the Old Testament, Jesus saw his death and his resurrection in terms of what the prophets predicted. As he, after he rose from the dead, he explains all of this to his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. Jesus sees himself as the one who fulfills all that God has willed, all that God said would happen. All of that happens in Christ. Bottom line is you can't have the Old Testament without the New because the Old Testament then is pointless. And you can't have the New Testament without the Old because the New Testament loses its meaning. The apostles then moved out from Jesus and taught and preached and look through the passages of Scripture yourself and find the apostles preaching without referring back to the Old Testament. Even those more scandalous passages, even those stories we'd rather hide or close the book on for forever. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter alludes to the flood as he's describing baptism. One of the more scandalizing places in all of Scripture that God wiped out humanity through his judgment, but also delivered believing Noah through the waters of the flood. And this preaching, this pointing out of scandal, this not being ashamed of God's judgment and what he would do bore fruit. It did so over and over again, not just in Jerusalem or Colossae, but throughout the world. We can ask all sorts of questions of Scripture. We can even ask, did Jesus really rise from the dead? After all, that's what the Bible points us to, that event. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And I can ask you this question first. So, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. All right, here we go. You're looking at me now. Great. Do you believe that the Trojan War has happened? Yes? Based on what evidence? History. What, what evidence from history? Anybody? Some archaeology. Yeah. Okay. And, of course, there's Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. We see it described there. And anything else? Word of mouth. What we have when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus is several times more than that. The weight of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is more than many other things that we know for certain happen in history. We have an 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days after his resurrection to 500 witnesses. At the time that Paul wrote that, you could actually go back and talk to these people about these appearances. You could interview them. You could verify that fact. You also have four separate accounts of Scripture or accounts of Jesus' life in the Scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written at times when these apostles were away from one another so they could not coordinate a lie or tell you some kind of story, but simply writing down the truth. We have four biographies of Jesus that line up and sync together. You have an empty tomb where no body has ever been found, and yet at the same time you have several biblical and historical sources that testify to the fact that Jesus died on the cross. You weigh all this up and you have more evidence than we have for many things that happened in the ancient world that we firmly believe anyway. 
all this cannot take you to faith. All this cannot make you believe. You can even look around and say, is this gospel still bearing fruit today? Are people still giving up everything they have for the sake of the gospel? Are people still suffering all kinds of torture and even death for the sake of the gospel? And the answer to that is yes. But in spite of all that, we still struggle at times. We, we still wrestle with our doubts. We still have questions. And there we find assurance also in Jesus Christ. There is only one person who ever believed perfectly. There's only one person who ever had an airtight faith without wrestling, without questions, without wondering, without doubt. There's only one that we could ever say was truly always strong in faith. And that is Christ himself. This Jesus gave his life for us, who are weak in faith, who wonder, who struggle, who are oftentimes like ships tossed back and forth by the winds. We who maybe at times wonder if we have any faith at all, Jesus died for you. So he was raised blameless ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now all glory and honor is due to him. If that has happened for him, then imagine what he will share for we believe in him and his word.